you are a human animal. You are a very special breed. For you are the only animal who can think, who can reason, who can read. Hello and welcome to Bookworm. This is Michael Silverblatt and today you're going to hear the last installment in our series, A Heartbreaking Group of Staggering Geniuses. You've heard, in no particular order, Dave Eggers, Donald Antrim, George Saunders, Mark C. Danielewski, Dennis Cooper, and Betty Stanellis. And today we're talking to David Foster Wallace. David Foster Wallace is the author, most recently, of Brief Interviews with Hideous Men, which has come out in paperback from Back Bay Books. He is the author as well. I want to say, of course, here, and I think it should be, of course, of Infinite Jest, A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again, Girl with Curious Hair, and The Broom of the System. He is, if you've been listening, the writer that most of our writers have most frequently referred to as an inspiration, as a breakthrough point, as a level against which they aspire. So in this interview, I'm going to be asking David about his own work and about some of the questions that have been coming up again and again during the series. I caution listeners, I am talking to David in his home in Illinois It is an outpost of Illinois, and we are at the mercy of the sounds of the telephone and the background sounds of human life. (laughs) Like that. Not rigged. (laughs) As long as he does that elsewhere in the house, we'll be all right. What is its name? That dog is named Jeeves. Jeeves. Who heard about this and was actually looking forward to sitting in, but apparently he's been he's been called away. <laughs> um, I wanted to begin by talking to you about the difficulty of some of these books, and certainly about Infinite Jest. It was only um, a couple of weeks ago that at a ongoing reading of Gravity's Rainbow at UCLA, a very triumphant-sounding graduate student told me that they'd lobbied an infinite jest had been put on as a required book under the category postmodern novel in the UCLA graduate orals exams. Um, But at the same time, some of the writers have spoken about how dazzled they were by the book, so impressed and even bewildered by it that they're only now coming to a sense of how great it is. And I wanted to ask, because I've never asked anyone before, do you see that book itself as a challenge for you? Are you trying to match its difficulty? Does trying to do that, even in prospect, fatigue or inspire you? I guess what interests me is just like what interests everybody else. It's just sort of what, what feels what feels real and and a lot of what feels real to me or, or resonates with my own life in 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 fiction involves um involves digesting and handling a certain a certain kind of a large volume of information and and, and also being ha- having the real problem be not not how to resolve certain stuff but the question whether certain stuff or not certain stuff can be resolved or not. I don't know whether that makes any sense, but um, 
I get a, I get a little puzzled when people talk about the difficulty of infinite jest because, to the best of my recollection, it's just it's not that complicated. I mean, there are a couple of things sort of toward the end that can go one way or the other, but um, I, for the most part, I just remember it as being kind of sad. Irresolvability does seem extremely important in my sense of your work. When I read, and in this case, reread, and in this case, more so, not only reread, but heard a, a two volume tape you did for um, Time Warner audiobooks of um, unexpurgated stories from brief interviews with hideous men. My sense was that, like the ending of Infinite Jest, what qualifies a subject for you is that it be irresolvable. Yeah. Um, I, 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 you know, I, I guess I would just come back to 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 what kind of feels real, quote unquote, in our tummy, and, and it, you know, your 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 classic sort of commercial art of which of which the easiest example would be the detective genre. The the whole thing is about. You know, establishing a puzzle and then and then resolving it somehow. And you could. It's not hard to make the argument that a lot of a lot of sort of more mainstreamy or, or realist fiction works the same way. But but I don't mm-hmm. think I don't think I don't think irresolvability is is really what feels real to me because once you've determined that something is in fact irresolvable, well, you know, it sounds it sounds like like I'm just playing with words, but you've really resolved it. You know, um, unsolvable. Where I don't know about you, but it just seems to me that in all kinds of that in all kinds of situations, some of which are, are very important, most of the energy most of the energy goes in go, goes into trying to decide whether it's worth spending energy trying to resolve it or not. You know, there is a test. I think, given the students in Infinite Chess, they're asked to resolve a uh, apparent irresolvable situation. There is a kleptomaniac who has developed agoraphobia. So he can't go to the places where he richly yearns to steal from. And uh, eventually, it seems like a classical joke, and it's so funny that I always tell about it, The um, someone comes up with a solution of mail fraud for that hapless young kleptomaniac. But in brief interviews with hideous men, double binds of that sort are discovered and magnified so that a woman, for instance, who has a kind of perfection mania, wants to be a perfect mother, feels very critical of her imperfect son, but wanting to be a perfect mother, she can't criticizes she can't criticize him, so she continues to praise him, and eventually, as a kind of gift, the title of that story suggests, um, the son commits suicide. Um, and I wondered about the double bind as the inspiration point for a lot of these fictions. The brief interviews book, if it was unified by anything, had had to do with loneliness, and and loneliness particularly particularly in the context of you know um, relationships between people, and and I guess I guess it emerged that at least for me double binds or or um, that kind of W Somerset mom appointment in Samara, you know, I'm running from death and and 
um, death is actually waiting for me in the city that I'm running off to. I don't know if it's like a little, it's like a little fable from a rock or something. That those sorts of, I don't know what it, you'd call it a cosmic irony, I guess, in a lit class, have a certain kind of weird resonance for me. I don't think they're entirely an intellectual resonance. It just sort of seems to me to be the way things are. It seems to me, what, what kind of amazes me when I'm reading these books is that previous writers, the writers that um, an earlier generation worshipped, those would include, I think, Vladimir Nabokov, Thomas Mann, James Joyce, um, had a kind of standard of prose, beauty, or excellence that could be, I think, referred to as a bellatristic tradition, the tradition of beautiful letters. Um, the writing that I've been talking about is less interested in consistency of style or the forging of a high style than it occurs to me in making a kind of beautiful mess, risking throwing all kinds of things into the soup in order to make the situation more complex. And when you think of the person who kept putting oddments and bits of the cultures of Fluvia into the work, you think of Donald Barthelme in that generation, and even he, or perhaps especially he, was interested in a kind of consistent, no-mess, stylist's prose. I, I wondered if you could talk about the kind of prose that's getting written now, the kind of prose that you write. I guess maybe I, I'd say this, which I'm not sure is true, but I think it's at least interesting, is that and now, what am I thinking of? There was a thing that hardly anybody talks about anymore called In the Context of No Context mm-hmm. by I George, that piece. George W.S. Trout. Yes. Now, this is a little toss-off in it, and I think it's in the second part, and it's about music, where he talks about awkwardness, awkwardness versus sort of smoothness. And he's talking about a certain moment in blues and in the evolution of like popular music out of blues. And his basic point was that um, like transferring it to this um, call this my generation you know I was born in 62 so call this people who were born then or after I, I think smoothness and, and prettiness might have a slightly different connotation for us than it did say for the earlier generation for the earlier generation it was probably associated with education and refinement um, sort of sort of good manners um, and and I think for my generation, smoothness, whether it be kind of the the, the effortless um, prose or the, the the smooth, seamless um, document where where no question is brought up that isn't resolved and no gun is shown that isn't fired in the third act and all that stuff. I, I think we equate that kind of sophistication more with um, not smoothness but slickness and a certain kind of, I mean, it might you, you might even say it's the difference between sort of a top 40 uh, song and a, a kind of more alternative or, or garage song that, 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 that there is something in in, in, in people of around my generation, and I don't know whether it's right or not, but I think a certain kind of awkwardness or lack of traditional patrician refinement we associate not with naivete or clumsiness so much as with, mm-hmm. as with uh, sincerity mm-hmm. and being heartfelt, being real 
dash homemade versus being slick, seamless, uh, more like a corporate product. I, and I don't know whether that makes any sense, but when I think when it,